This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, NPR, The Onion Radio News, The Tom Hartman Program, The Jimmy Dore Show, Media Matters, The Young Turks, Sam Cedar, and The David Pakman Show with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Young Turks. If you needed any more evidence of Fox host Bill O'Reilly's bigotry, he delivered on his May 19th show. The Fox host was trying to explain why Barack Obama is unpopular in Muslim countries, chalking it up to a Muslim problem in the world. The West is secular and human rights oriented, while Muslim societies are, quote, centered on religion, and many Muslims believe if you don't worship Allah, you are an infidel, and therefore you don't deserve human rights, close quote. Odd that O'Reilly, who has claimed for years that the traditions of Christmas have been under fire by committed secularists, people who do not want any public demonstrations of spirituality, would hold up U.S. secularism in a positive way. But he had more to say. The USA has poured trillions of dollars into the Muslim world, fighting wars in Iraq and Afghanistan designed to liberate those people from tyrannical governments. But apparently, vast majority of Muslims are not grateful. They despise President Obama as much as they hated George W. Bush. So Muslims haven't thanked the U.S. for the Iraq war. As if that weren't bad enough, O'Reilly concluded like this. For every Muslim in the world that wants democracy and wants human rights, there's one who doesn't. And the one who doesn't doesn't have any rules. It'll blow the hell out of the one that does. So that silences the good Muslims who see the danger from the Muslim world. I gotta run down. That's Fox's Bill O'Reilly explaining the problem with Muslims and the problem with Bill O'Reilly. President Obama's administration has set aside millions of dollars to help local police and sheriffs understand and recognize terrorism. The money helped to create an industry. Self-styled terrorism experts travel to local law enforcement agencies across the U.S. They teach about the threat. The surprise came when a trainer began using a session to question a fellow American who has also served the government. That trainer in Ohio began raising questions about a man who was Muslim. This is the first of two stories in which we'll report on law enforcement efforts to reach out to American Muslims. NPR's Dina Temple-Raston reports on the training session that turned a state employee into a suspect. His name is Omar al-Omari, and he looks very much like the college professor that he is. Tweed jacket, button-down shirt, thick round glasses, big coffee drinker. Which is why we met at a coffee shop near downtown Columbus. That's where he told me how he ended up being accused of having links to terrorists. 
Actually, I was out of town, out of state, attending a conference, and uh, on my way back to Columbus, uh, I received a, a call from uh, one of the attendees uh, in which I was told that my name was uh, used repeatedly during the training. The training was a three-day seminar for police and others in the Columbus area. It was entitled, Understanding the True Nature of the Threat to America. The trainers talked about the threat, about how the enemy was using U.S. law to its advantage, and then they offered specific examples of what they said was Islamic radicalism in Ohio. And it was in that context that the trainers focused on Professor Omari. I was labeled as a suspect. Uh, they personalized, of course, you know, the attacks. Uh, there was a promise to dig into my background. And basically, as an Arab Muslim American, they thought that uh, I'm a suspect. A picture of Omari with members of a local Muslim advocacy group was shown on the screen. According to people in the class that day, the trainers didn't say outright that Omari was a terrorist, but they suggested that he had links to bad people, people who were members of the Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, and even Al-Qaeda. One of the trainers was a man named John Vondolo. He's a former FBI agent. He wouldn't talk on tape, but he told me that he stood by what he said that day about Omari. He said... The facts are on my side. Now, to understand why the accusations against Omari were so surprising, you have to understand that at the time, Omari ran a key Muslim outreach program for the state of Ohio. What he was doing was considered so effective, counterterrorism officials in Washington sent him overseas to talk about it. Omari is from Jordan. He's been living in the U.S. for 30 years. He's an American citizen. Even so, for many people in the class, it seemed entirely possible that he could be a terrorist. That surprised one of the people in the room that day, Deputy Chief Jeffrey Blackwell. I spoke with Chief Blackwell in an unmarked squad car outside the Columbus Police Academy, where last year's training took place. I was shocked. I was shocked that a person um, at his level in the state of Ohio, Department of Public Safety, would have his picture displayed by an anti-terrorism group. Chief Blackwell is now in charge of the police department's Homeland Security Unit. His reputation was impugned incredibly by, by the speakers. And nobody sort of said, hey, wait a minute? Yeah, there was a wait a minute moment. There clearly was a wait a minute moment. Blackwell and some of the other leaders in the department suspended the class. We had a meeting and we discussed what in fact we were witnessing right before our very eyes, what was transpiring in the lecture hall. Remember, nearly everyone in the room knew Omari. Most of the visiting officers and Columbus cops had actually worked with him on outreach in the Muslim community. But for some reason, maybe because former government officials said that Omari couldn't be trusted, people in the room were ready to believe the worst. Chief Blackwell hadn't expected that. There were a large amount of people there that felt the class was in fact appropriate that the finger-pointing and the name-calling and the, the nexuses that were developed and discussed were appropriate to discuss. And then you had a huge percentage that were equally and diametrically opposed to that way of teaching and the substance of the anti-terrorism class. So what was the lesson you took from that? That, as Americans, we are all over the board on our feelings um, about the terrorism issue um, and as a law enforcement professional, even law enforcement is divided um, in how they view people. The next day, some people came to Omari's defense. The head of the local Joint Terrorism Task Force and one of the FBI's top agents in Ohio came to the academy and assured the class that Omari wasn't a terrorism suspect. 
Everyone says that at that point, the room erupted in shouts. Half the officers sided with Omari. The other half trusted the trainer, Guandolo, and assumed he must be privy to information on Omari that he wasn't revealing. Guandolo suggested, when I interviewed him on the phone, that there were things he knew that the FBI didn't. Chief Blackwell says even more than a year later, he's still upset by the episode. That was not a good day, in my opinion, for the Columbus Division of Police or law enforcement in general. I think this is something that uh, happens across the nation fairly consistently. That's Bill Braniff. He's in charge of the training program at the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. He sees what happened in Ohio as part of a larger problem. The Muslim American community is being preyed upon from two different directions. One, the jihadist recruitment and radicalization that is actively preying on their sons and daughters. And two, the elevated levels of Islamophobia and you know, Islamophobia at worst and, and just distrust or alienation at best. That distrust had consequences in Columbus. Omar Al-Omari, he lost his job. And not because he has ties to terrorism. After that training session, officials began digging into Omari's past. And they eventually found something. They discovered that Omari had lied on his employment application. He hadn't listed all the schools where he'd worked before taking the job with the state of Ohio. Omari says he just listed places where he had taught relevant courses, but he was fired anyway, some six months after the training session. Federal officials familiar with the case say Omari was singled out because he distinguished between extremist Muslims and mainstream Muslims in his outreach and training programs. Guandolo, the trainer, had a different view. When he talked to me about Muslim groups in the U.S., he spoke in terms of whether Muslims were patriotic or not. Omar Al-Omari still can't believe he got fired. I lost uh, a lot of things over this. I lost respect, dignity, reputation. Everything really was connected with that. And the trainers that day at the Columbus Police Department? One of them is scheduled to hold another training session in August at the CIA. Dina Temple-Raston, NPR News. I hope you enjoy this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the Onion Radio News. A Catholic child is told about doggy heaven and doggy hell. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Three days after burying his beloved Labrador retriever Shiner, Northampton, Massachusetts nine-year-old Danny McNeil was told about doggy heaven and hell by his fourth grade teacher, Sister Doris Benke. Don't cry, Daniel. He's probably running through green fields and chasing squirrels in doggy heaven right now. Or if he was a bad doggy, his doggy soul is burning in the eternal white-hot kennel fires of doggy hell. Young Daniel was reportedly too stunned by the nun's disclosure to ask about the possibility of doggy purgatory. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News. Online.
more people in prison in this country, both in absolute numbers and as a percentage, than any other country in the world. And there are some very large countries in the world with some very repressive regimes. What do we do about this? How do we change this? Byron Johnson thinks he has a solution, or a pieces of a solution. He's the author of More God, Less Crime, Why Faith Matters, and How It Could Matter More. Uh, it's published by Temple Press, Templeton Press, excuse me, templetonpress.org. Byron, welcome. Thank you, Tom. Good to be here. Um, I, your your book, uh, I have, actually, one of the I thought one of the best pieces of your book was uh, in the uh, page two hundred and twelve. This this great uh, chart about the challenge that ex prisoners have to reenter into the community, mm-hmm. and you know, from housing and and uh, counseling, volunteer training, mentoring, job training, placement, getting jobs. You know, people not hiring ex prisoners. The, the ravages that our criminal justice system have made or that crime has made or that poverty has made or, you know, pick your choice, particularly in minority communities in the United States, and how the church has been historically at the core, in particular of the, of the African-American community in the United States, which is one of those communities most hard hit by, by uh, imprisonment. You know, uh, uh, the, the, I, I believe it's one in ten African-American men at one point or another has been through the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think you correctly identify that, that religion can transform people's lives and that religious institutions can be, can, you know, can provide structure that can help people prevent, you know, avoid crime or transition out of crime. Do I have all that right? You, you do have it right. What you're, you're saying there is, um, a problem that's so complicated that I think too many people want to make it a simple one. And um, these offenders coming out of prison have so many obstacles, and that's why I'm always surprised when people say the recidivism rate is so high. Um, For me, I always am amazed that the recidivism rate isn't higher when you consider so many obstacles that they have to confront. Well, not to mention the fact that just in American society, we have one in six Americans right now, some studies show one in five, on food stamps. Mm. I mean, forget the people who came out of prison. I mean, poverty is, and, and, and just getting a decent job um, these days means getting an $8 an hour job, and, and you know, who can raise a family on that, you know? It's, right. it's uh, with, with absolutely no benefits and things. Now, here's where I, I'm very uncomfortable with your book. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, Arthur Brooks, for example, who, uh, the president of the American Enterprise Institute, who blurbed your book, you know, he yeah. said very nice words about it, is the author of the book, The Battle, How the Fight Between Free Enterprise and Big Government Will Shape America's Future. And one of your solutions is that government throw more money into religion and integrate religion into the criminal justice system. And I see that as an absolute violation of the Constitution. And even if we can produce a good outcome with it, there have to be other ways to do it. Well, I, I don't really say that the government should throw money at religion. What I do say is that... You that, document how it's worked where it's been done. Well, what I document is how where religion works, and it's usually done by volunteers, that they make a vital contribution, and they should be allowed to make that contribution. So I, what I'm arguing is that partnerships should be encouraged, but I, I'm not saying that religion should be funded by uh, the government. I don't argue that at all. Okay, so you're, you would be, you know, the, in that case then, how do we speak as you and I as two Christians, how do we speak to our brothers and sisters about 
the direction that so much of Christianity is going that, well, that is that is not in the spirit of Matthew 25, which is very right. much what you're talking about here. Exactly. Well, I think that what's happened is that the church has heard a message that's too simple. That you know, the message is that you know people need God, so let's take a Christian message into the prisons and preach the gospel. And what I'm arguing is that that's that's totally inadequate. Yeah, you're, you're saying it's really ultimately about community. It's about the community. I mean, and, you know, I think it's an easy thing for someone to think, well, you know, these people need help. I'll just go into a prison. What I'm arguing is that they do need help, but they need help in these other areas of their life. I'm not trying to diminish that, that they have spiritual needs, but they also have housing needs, employment needs, job training, counseling, and, you know, mentoring in the community. These are really important things that, that so far we've not been able to address at any level. Um, you know, many, many years ago, before I went to graduate school, I was actually a parole officer. And, you know, all, we did, all I could do as a parole officer was just to see how many of my caseload was getting arrested, and I'm monitoring those folks. I'm not really doing anything meaningful to help these people in the community. Right. So that just shows you that, you know, these, these government employees only have so much of their time that they can dedicate. And I think that you have these houses of worship, 380,000 of them all across the country, that could be doing some pretty amazing things if they were just to think about it. But and yet the vast majority of them will have nothing to do with prisoners. And if ex-prisoners who are homeless knock on their door, I've seen it myself, uh, sure. they get thrown out. I mean, they literally don't even let them in. Um, that's, but, that's true. But let me, that, let, me, let me propose a contrarian hypothesis to you, if I could, in the, in sure. the few minutes we have. If, if what we know and what your research shows, and, and you've done a very good job of documenting it in the book, is that community reduces recidivism, in other words, support networks and things, Yes. and that that kind of community is most lacking in communities of great poverty mm -hmm. or communities that have historically suffered oppression. Right. Then sh there's, there's, shouldn't there be uh, other ways that the government could get involved? And isn't, wasn't, frankly, this the essence of LBJ's Great Society, that the government can come in and say, okay, we're going to help build community by giving you jobs, by, by stimulating the economy, by, by providing a social safety net so that people don't have to resort to crime and end up in prison in order to just make it from day to day. And, you know, rather than doing it through religious institutions. I mean, can, can this not be done by secular institutions as it is done in virtually every European country? Well, I don't know that it's worked. Um, you know, here at least it hasn't worked, and so that's. Well, I don't think we've saying. ever really seriously tried it. Well, I don't know. I think that we have. I don't think we have any success. That's why I'm saying. Well, we you know, the Great Society cut poverty in half in four years, and and you know, uh, when poverty is cut, you, you have you know, not just recidivism goes down, but initial crime goes down. We did our program for a week from Denmark, and we spoke with several people involved in the in the Danish. Um, a government, you know, with regard to crime and criminals, and there is a, you know, there's such a social safety network there that people don't feel like they have to resort to crime. I mean, they have free health care no matter what. You know, they can get food no matter what. They can get housing no matter what. And, and you know, the government does what, it, you know, it's, it's the employer of last resort in many ways. Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, I'm not an authority on, on crime rates in Europe, but I do know this, some of the statistics that float around on imprisonment uh, from a number of countries really have issues with validity. 
I mean, um, you know, I've heard this, this statement before, and I heard you mention it at the outset, that, you know, we lock up more people per capita. The reality is the data that comes from so many of these other countries cannot even be trusted. So it's really an unclear picture how we stack up with many of these countries. Well, I won't disagree with that. You're, uh, certainly uh, countries like Burma and North Korea. Right. But uh, that said, we have too many people in prison. I think that's absolutely right. And we have and we have few, too few options for people when they get out of prison. And then we've got about a third of the states who want to say, and when you get out of prison, by the way, you can't even vote. You're not right. even a member of society. That's right. And this is, like, fundamentally wrong. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. Two months ago, the FBI descended on a mosque in Florida. They arrested a Muslim religious leader there. In time, two prominent clerics were picked up. The clerics were accused of funneling money to the Pakistani Taliban. The story was important news, but almost as newsworthy was what happened afterward. Nothing. Though it was considered an extremely sensitive case, the arrests did not spark protests in the South Florida Muslim community. The way the cases were handled is being lauded as a model for the way law enforcement and communities should work together. NPR's Dina Temple Reston continues her reports on counterterrorism training. To understand the events that took place in Miami two months ago, you need to know that in the Muslim American community, just about the most volatile thing law enforcement can do is arrest an imam a Muslim religious leader. Back in May, the FBI in Miami ended up arresting two. Imam Hafiz Khan, who ran the oldest mosque in South Florida, and his son, an imam in charge of a mosque in a suburb of Miami. After the arrest, there was no backlash, and there was a reason for that. Obviously, there's a lot of operational planning that goes on uh, before the arrests uh, take place. John Gillis is the special agent in charge of the Miami FBI office. We wanted to be uh, sensitive uh, to the fact that these imams would be conducting religious services uh, a number of times each day. So there was going to be no good day uh, to, to actually conduct these arrests, but there would actually be days that would be worse days to do it, like Friday. So the FBI decided that the best day to do it would be a Saturday in the morning. At 6 o'clock in the morning, we have first period of the morning. It was a little before 6 o'clock, like five minutes before. That's Saeed Shamin Akhtar. He was at the mosque when the FBI came to arrest the imam. And when I spoke to Akhtar, I asked him to take me around the mosque and describe what happened that morning. After the prayer started, somebody banged on our door like boom, boom, boom. FBI style, of course, you can understand. And FBI were, agents, agents were yeah, yes. And where were you? Were you just we were, yeah, we were inside on the very first uh, row, the first green line there, you see that? We were there, we were all sit down solemnly, stand up in 
thinking of God, God is looking at us, and we were just praying. While the people inside were praying, more than a dozen agents and their FBI windbreakers surrounded the mosque. Local police had cordoned off a two-block area. The mosque is an ordinary one-story stucco house in the middle of a residential neighborhood. If you didn't know it was a mosque, you'd drive right by it. That Saturday, once the prayers had finished, an agent and a translator approached the imam. The arrest was carried out respectfully. He came down to inside the masjid with his shoes off. <laughs> Who, the agent? The, the agent, yes. And he went all the way to, straight to him. He grabbed his hand and said, you're coming with me in, in Pashto. In Pashto, the imam was addressed in his own language. The people in the mosque were stunned. John Gillis, the FBI agent in charge, had been standing outside. And as he watched officers put Khan in a squad car and drive away, he then picked up his cell phone and started dialing up leaders in the community. One of the people he called was this man, Mohammed Shakir. FBI was decent enough um, that, that they called us before they called the press. Shakir works for the Office of Community Advocacy in Miami-Dade County. That, look, th this has taken place. I personally was there. I supervised it, and, and I made sure that everything goes by the book. No violation, no, no, no rudeness, no discrimination, uh, no, not, not to violate the mosque sanctity. And, so we immediately called a meeting and we got together and we developed the strategy how to respond. This may all sound like common sense, but arrests rarely happen this way. In the Miami case, there was a lot of attention to detail. The FBI waited for the morning prayers to end. The agent took off his shoes before entering the mosque. The FBI didn't arrest or handcuff the imam inside the mosque. The leaders of the Muslim community were kept informed. As it turns out, the officers there that day had literally finished, just a week before, a training course on cultural sensitivity involving Arab, Muslim, and Sikh American communities. This is a clip from a film that was shown in their training. If you visit a mosque, be aware that there are separate entrances to the prayer sections for males and females. The film is called In the First Three to Five Seconds, and it is a bit of a primer on Islamic culture. Shoes are removed before entering the area dedicated to prayer. Avoid stepping on the prayer rug with your shoes. What would the arrest have looked like before your training? What would it have looked like six months ago? Um, I, would you I would, have known I, to take off your shoes? Yes. Be that careful? Yes. Again, FBI Special Agent in Charge, John Gillis. I would like to think that we would have been respectful, uh, you know, six months ago, 12 months ago, five years ago. Yeah, we, we might have gone into the mosque without taking our shoes off and stuff. Uh, and I'm speaking personally here. Today, the Miami arrests are being held up as a model of how to handle these sensitive cases. I'm Wilfredo Ferrer. I'm the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Florida. Ferrer is one of two dozen U.S. attorneys across the country who've been asked to take part in a pilot program that has them reach out directly to local Muslim leaders. The reason I think that they got the U.S. attorneys involved is because we can convene the agencies, the community members in a fashion that, you know, we can bring everybody together to the table. It's taken almost a decade to get to this point. Since the 9-11 attacks, Muslim leaders have criticized law enforcement tactics as heavy-handed. They've complained about the FBI planting undercover agents or confidential informants inside mosques. The FBI won't apologize for those tactics, but they do acknowledge they can do a better job reaching out to the Muslim community. And being culturally sensitive can pay off in other ways. We have found that Muslim and Arab community members have been extremely helpful in disrupting, informing us of, uh, of any plots against the United States. 
And so it's, it's really a win-win for both sides. The gestures the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI made in the run-up to and after the Miami arrests have paid off. Two months later, there's been barely a ripple in the local Muslim community, even after a judge denied the two imams bail. Nobody knows all the facts yet. Even the lawyers don't know the facts yet. Again, Muslim community activist Mohammed Shakir. And if he's innocent, fine. We went, went through another American process, and, and we're, we're still hoping that uh, uh, when all is said and done, uh, he, he will come out uh, uh, innocent. And that American process continues. Hafiz Khan and his son have entered their pleas, not guilty to all charges. Dina Temple-Raston, NPR News. I think evolution should be taught, but I also think that maybe the biblical stuff should be taught as well. I think it's great to get both sides of the story. I'm personally a Christian, so I believe the Bible's version, but we should have evolution taught in schools as well as a belief in faith. Those are some of this year's Miss USA contestants answering the question, should evolution be taught in public schools? It's kind of like the adult version of Bill Cosby's Kids Say the Darndest Things. I just got done watching the whole video online, which was very hard to hear, over Gloria Steinem's weeping. My first question is, which Southern ministry sponsors the Miss USA contest? Half of them responded like it was some kind of a trick question. Ooh, it's tough because everybody has their different beliefs. Um, gosh, I don't know. I... That's a very difficult question. Um, you know, it's just, oh, God, that's kind of a tough one. That is such a tough one. Um, mm, it is tough. Should they teach science in science class or not? Mm, Going to have to think that one over. I honestly don't think you can ever have too much knowledge on any subject. That's my personal view. Why don't I believe her? Why do I believe there's a big bucket of ignorance coming at me right now? But I do feel that evolution shouldn't be taught in school just because there's so many different different views on it. So many different definitions. Like, how do you teach a child the true meaning of evolution when so many different cultures have their different beliefs and scientists have their different theories? It's just not a good subject that I feel everyone will agree on in classrooms. When So... I just personally don't think it's a good topic for school subjects at all. You know, she's she's right, too. I mean, school's no place to be imparting knowledge. It's just going to piss somebody off. I believe that evolution should be mentioned in school. The thing is, it's it's all about what you believe in, and it shouldn't be pushed on you. But again, you should be knowledgeable about it. Yes, I agree. They should be knowledgeable about it. I mean... If you're going to knowledge someone about it, you first have to make sure they've been thoroughly thoughted about it and are also smarted enough to handle it. 
think it's necessary that evolution is taught in schools because it is part of our history and the belief system that the West has held for a long amount of time. Yeah, you know, it's been around for a long time, so it should be taught in history class. However, personally, I don't believe in evolution. I believe that each one of us were created for a purpose by God, and that just gives my life so much more direction and meaning. I believe God created you for a reason, too. Mostly to drive up Viagra sales and make smart girls feel unpopular. But most of the answers to the evolution question sounded a lot like this answer from Miss Montana. Um, I think that it should definitely be presented as an option. And I think that both sides should be presented and that the student should be able to make their own choices. Yeah, see, we got to tell both sides of the story. The scientific side and the bullshit side. If students don't know what's fact or fiction, it builds character. Take World War II, for instance. Some people believed it was Hitler's fault. And some people think it was the Jews' fault. I say, let the kids figure it out. And now, here's Miss Colorado. Should we teach evolution in public schools? I think that... We should definitely open up to offering different ways to teach students about everything, different thought processes, different ideas, because it's important to let students just decide their own ideas and what they want to believe in. Sure, it's important to let the students decide what they believe in. Like, uh, I believe that God makes babies and delivers them from a stork, and that Abraham Lincoln was our founding father. And that angels make planes fly by carrying them on their backs. That's what I believe. And it's important to let the students decide what they believe. Just like, you know, like it's American Idol. Is it scientific fact or isn't it? I don't know. You call in and vote. Let them decide about grammar and history and algebra and everything. E equals MC squared? Not in my Bible it doesn't. E equals whatever the fuck God says it equals. I took evolution in college, and I really enjoyed it because it helped me gain perspective. And I just believe that everyone should have equal opportunity in education. So if it is available, it could be available as an elective, I think. Oh, you're so close. You didn't take evolution in school. You took elocution in school. That's elocution. Say it with me. I took elocution, not evolution. Okay, there you go bits and pieces of evolution should be taught in schools because it is a theory and after all we all need to know about different theories so that we can figure out what we want to believe is true okay a couple of thoughts here first of all the theory of evolution it's not a theory like a regular dumb person thinks it's a scientific theory which means it's a conclusion based on empirical evidence that cannot be disproven so that means it's accepted fact Okay, not the same thing as a theory. And when something's a fact, you don't get to believe in it or not believe in it. Oh, yeah, like the theory of gravity? I don't believe in that, which is why I have to strap myself down to the earth all the time. I don't know. I think that's just, I think we should leave that up to the government. I don't think, I'm not sure. I think a lot of people would have an issue if evolution was taught in school. I think we should just leave that out of it. The evolution should be taught in schools only because it's a great subject to touch base on. This video should be entitled, On the Fence About Being a Misogynist? Press play. Evolution's kind of a touchy subject. I took a class called Biological Anthropology, though, and it taught the history of evolution, and 
It's very scientific, so I would think both should be taught in schools because you should probably know the whole story. Hmm. Why do I feel like she got an F in her biological anthropology class? What shocked me the most about this was that I was shocked at all. Really? Women with a value system that lead them into beauty pageantry have a completely backward view on social issues? Truly shocking. I can't believe that people who have been rewarded their whole lives for their physical attributes might not have anything intelligent to say. Seriously, I was so shocked, I almost stopped masturbating. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> you know, I, I, I used to think that the biggest victims uh, were, I used to think that laboratory animals were the biggest victims of makeup. <laughs> <laughs> In their in their defense, isn't the Miss USA pageant proof that evolution doesn't exist? <laughs> in, yeah. the, in their defense, because they they don't seem they they've evolved one bit since yeah. 1952, do they? Yeah, yeah. 19, uh, 1921, actually. Yeah. Oh, that was Miss America. So Miss USA pageant started when the one of the Miss America winners refused to be photographed in a bikini. So the sponsor of the Miss America decided to do their own thing, and that's when the Miss USA got started. Oh, mm -hmm. really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know a little bit of history of the uh, the pageants, the pageantry. The sure. Mm -hmm. and, Actually, uh, you were studying your masturbation history. <laughs> <laughs> it came up, yes. And uh, pardon the pun, but I, I actually, you know, speaking of the pageantries, though, I do know. Uh, this kind of it's just weird to see it's like wow look John Benet Ramsey's all grown up you know and this is what would have happened and uh, people still they haven't solved that crime but I do know my friend Ted Hardwick uh, used to travel in the, the child pageant uh, circles and he found out the word is on the street what happened to John Benet Ramsey was that she was a little bit of a bitch and her mouth got her in trouble so <laughs> wow yeah so that's that's what they say god four year olds uh, yeah. So anyway, so you want to hear some of the? Should we? Do you have something to say, Robert? Yeah. I, what I find interesting, like the theme that runs through this, is that they're like, well, it depends what you believe, and it, it's it so much exemplifies what's what's going on in the United States and has been for like the last thirty years of like, forget the facts. What do you believe? And yes. it's, it's like, well, that's the whole basis of the Republican Party right now because they're like they desperately want you to ignore facts and go with what you believe. Well, how can you be shocked by what beauty pageant contestants are saying when in the last presidential election in one of the Republican debates they asked here you know, who believes in evolution and only like two people on the – of Repu running for president of the United States, only two people on the podium raised their hand. My brother the This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Danny Herrera. Fox & Friends hosted author Tim Grossclose this morning to talk about alleged media bias in the aftermath of the Norway terrorist attacks. 
Predictably, most of the interview entailed false assumptions about the political beliefs of journalists. But, but Tim, what you're media. saying is, I'm, I'm trying to get to the bottom of it, you're saying that the reporters who are mostly Democratic are uh, anti-Christian, is that right? Well, yeah, I'm not sure. Anti-Christian is just, uh, there's, I've noticed this, you know, I work at a university and I, I live among the, the far left, and uh, I've just noticed it's just not in vogue to uh, be sympathetic to Christianity. I sense this on the far left. They're more sympathetic to, to Muslim, and, and I don't know why, but the best explanation I've heard, I've heard is a scholar out at uh, Claremont University, he's named Larry Greenfield, says the left worship the God of equality. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Fox News, unbelievably, is going to pretend that this killer in Norway, Breivik, is not a conservative. Watch Brian Kilmeade. Now, Breivik has admitted to the attacks, but claims he was on a crusade to stop radical Muslims among his men, much, uh, much of his rantings. So why is the mainstream media so quick to paint Breivik as a right-wing extremist? Why is the mainstream media quick to paint him that way? Well, let's ask Police Chief Roger Anderson from Norway, who says, quote, What we know is that he is a right-wing and Christian fundamentalist. That might have been a clue. Furthermore, he says, uh, he himself says, Breivik says, that his manifesto is, quote, a conservative revolution. That might give you a clue as well, that he might be on the right wing. Um... And then he has quotes like this, The European tree of liberty will be refreshed by the blood of our patriots and of the Marxist tyrants. The civil war will last several decades, but will succeed. Again, uh, the tree of liberty being refreshed, that is some of the right-wing terminology that we have heard here. Now, originally it was a Jefferson quote, and there was nothing wrong with it, but the right-wing has adopted it uh, to uh, justify bringing guns to rallies, and, and he has, uh, Breivik has uh, used it to justify actually shooting people. All right, now what Fox News does next is they bring on a guy who I don't, certainly, I don't know what his religion is, but he is obviously Middle Eastern. They make it seem like, well, we brought on a Muslim expert here who's going to tell us it's okay. And watch. 
Whatever has written in his 1,000 pages, which I've read mostly at least, has nothing to do with his behavior as a psychopath. He could have been a Marxist, extreme left-wing, right-wing, psychopath, killer, or even fundamentalist. In this case, uh, what he has done is to say he represents the fundamentalist European thinking, meaning he wants the Europe that existed in the 19th century. He criticizes everybody. He criticizes the Nazis, the Marxists the capitalist, the right wing, the left wing, he wants to build an ideology on his own. I love it. By the way, this is Dr. Walid Ferris. They bring him on to say, oh, no, 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 this guy's just a lunatic. Well, then when the Muslims act, well, that is an ideology, and we have to all hate the Muslims, and we all have to be prepared for the Islamic revolution. But when a Christian fundamentalist acts that way, well, he could have been anybody. He's a lunatic. He could have been a Christian. He could have been a Muslim. Except he wrote... Uh, celebrate us, the martyrs of the conservative revolution, for we will soon dine in the kingdom of heaven. Again, sounds like Al-Qaeda, but a Christian fundamentalist. He could have been anything, but he isn't. He's a Christian fundamentalist. By the way, it would be okay if Fox News did the same thing when there were Muslim terrorists. If they came out and said, look, come on, the guy's a lunatic. For example, the guy who shot everybody at Fort Hood, right? I mean, who shoots their fellow soldiers? That's crazy, right? The guy's a lunatic. He could have been a Muslim. He could have been a Christian. Is that what you heard on Fox News? That's not what I heard on Fox News. They're like, Muslim terrorists, they're coming for us. But when it's a Christian terrorist, well, could have been anybody. Dr. Walid continues with Kill Me. You know, and Congressman Peter King immediately gets a call and they say, see what you're doing, essentially. Uh, see what you're doing by having these look at w- w- forcing Muslims to go to the, uh, become extremists in the U.S. You're forcing this kind of behavior that happened in Norway. Are you surprised by that, that here in the U.S., we're, we're looking to deflect the attention. I think the European governments, and this is a warning for us here and in Canada and the West in general, if we don't engage in a debate, if we don't identify, if things are always gray, what happens is that the mainstream would be going away from the discussion and who takes over? Guys like this guy. So it's not good not to debate. It's good to debate so that the extremists won't have an agenda. Do you see what they did there? They turned it on its head. They say, well, if you don't debate it like Peter King is saying, by the way, Peter King's hearings are on investigating all Muslim Americans to see if they have terrorist ties. He says, well, I don't know. I mean, Islam is an ideology, so we've got to investigate all these Muslims, find out which ones are guilty and which ones are innocent. I'm just opening up a debate. This guy's saying, well, if you don't do that, you'll have these killers who are killing Muslims. How does that make any sense? No, if you antagonize everybody and say the Muslims are coming, the Muslims are coming, you're going to get somebody like this. Who would read a 2000 year old medical journal? Techniques for bloodletting, advice on trichotosis. Would you navigate the globe with a map of a flat earth? Without DNA testing, would you believe virgin birth? And I find it's getting painful to put up with chronodons. It's the Onion Radio News. Christ returns for some of his old things. This is Doyle Redland reporting. 
After being away for nearly two millennia, Jesus Christ triumphantly returned today to pick up some of his old belongings. Christ, who had in his own time found great fame and later died for our sins, made these remarks as he wandered through his old apartment. I left a really comfortable pair of sandals in Galilee and I wanted them back. Has anybody seen that goblet I really liked? This marks Christ's first return since 76 A.D. when he thought he'd forgotten to turn off his coffee pot. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News, online at theonion.com. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Jess Levin. The right-wing media are in a frenzy over the fact that the alleged Norway shooter claims to have committed his terrorist acts in the name of restoring a Christian Europe. Here's the difference. There is no evidence this man was a member of a church. No evidence that he followed the teachings of Jesus Christ, as you know. They're nonviolent. Okay? Well, no evidence Bill that he had anything to do with the Christian faith. Yet, they call him a Christian because he says he is? Come on. O'Reilly's guests question why the same standard didn't apply to violent extremists of the Islamic faith. I think that, you know, there are over a billion Muslims in the world. I think most Muslims would tell you that guy is not a Muslim because well, wait, 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 he wait, wait, doesn't, we don't believe in this kind of thing. I'm not saying that he was a good Muslim. I'm saying that he was a Muslim terrorist because... For this story and more. Frank Gaffney, one of the original neocons, still filter. I don't know how, I don't know, I don't know how this guy hasn't been drummed out of the country at this point. Uh, listen to what he perceives could be a possible explanation for this uh, right-wing uh, fundamentalist Christian, anti-Marxist, anti-multiculturalist, anti-Muslim uh, uh, terrorist. Uh, what he meant, or what, what was really behind this 1,500-page manifesto and this terrorist attack? It cries out for a thorough investigation as to whether it was, in fact, an authentic piece of his own creation, whether it was a false flag operation, uh, whether it actually was meant to do anything other than contribute to Sharia's efforts to suppress criticism and awareness of its agenda. So his 1,500-page manifesto, his killing rampage, was a false flag operation. False flag operation, by that what uh, the neocon means, is uh, something like a setup by the forces, in this case, of those proponents of Sharia law. We're going to do this and uh, blame it on our so-called opposition uh, so that we can creepily, creepy, creeping into Sharia law. In fact, um, the, we've managed to infiltrate the White House and gone back in time, and we, uh, we have uh, George Bush holding an iftar uh, celebration, uh, celebrating uh, Ramadan. Uh, and now we've been able to get the secret Muslim, Barack Obama, 
uh, to carry this forward. And all it took was somebody sitting at a typewriter, writing a 1,500-page manifesto, and convincing this, uh, this uh, Christian fundamentalist to go on a killing spree. This guy's effing insane. The person who shot that video is irresponsible insofar that they didn't contact the authorities to have this guy committed. This is stunning. I just knew too much. Mm. Does that make me crazy? Does that make me crazy? Hey, David Pakman here, host of The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. If you're like me, you're a regular listener of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Jay Tomlinson. If you like that, I invite you to check out my show, The David Pakman Show. Not only will you hear the best of the left, but you'll also hear some of the worst of the right, including some of the craziest bigots and racists around. But don't worry, I don't agree with them. Check out davidpakman.com, check out our show, continue listening to Best of the Left podcast, and even consider becoming a member of The David Pakman Show, all at davidpakman.com. The individual's name, he's 32 years old, his name is Anders Bering Brevik. He had been living with his mother. Every indication is that he is a right-wing extremist, and every indication that we've seen from conservative media in the United States is that this was some kind of Muslim Islamic terrorism. No surprise there at all, and I'll get into detail of that, but you, it, was, it was written on the wall, Lewis, that that was going to be the angle until all evidence pointed in a different direction that we were going to hear. Right, and I mean, in most people's minds, when they even hear the word terror, it's automatically equated to some type of uh, Islamic A person who has dark, darker skin than, than someone from, from Norway normally would, that's for sure. Right. Seven were killed when a blast ripped through Oslo's government headquarters, and then 85 were killed at a mass shooting at a nearby youth camp. Dozens more were hospitalized. There are actually pictures, Lewis, of Anders Bering Brevik, the 32-year-old shooter, from a helicopter, from a police helicopter above this island uh, camp, youth camp, where it is clearly a scene of complete terror, and he is holding a gun and just taking fire at people. And it, I mean, it literally is, it, it, it just seems like a nightmare situation. It was a nightmare, except sadly it was real mm -hmm. for a lot of the people on that, at that youth camp. Right. And there are two interesting directions that this could go. And I think we're already seeing which way it will go. We're already seeing the best and the worst from media and government as a result of this incident. On the one hand, you remember, Lewis, when Sweden had their suicide incident, a suicide bomb, bombing took place in Sweden, and we discussed in detail, well, in the U.S., many conservatives like to say, Europe is all liberal until they get attacked, and then everything changes. And we said, well, let's keep an eye and see actually what happens in Sweden. And we actually did not see a neoconservatization of their security policy. Now, we have already heard from a number. Also, I mean, I'm pretty sure no one died in that incident, right? Other than the... Other than the, the bomber. The suicide bomber, yeah. that's correct. Yeah. This is a very different incident. However, mm -hmm. we're already hearing from a number of Norwegian elected officials that this is, that times like this are not the times for less democracy. They are the times for more democracy. And that's already been criticized by many American neoconservatives. And we'll see what direction it goes. The, the way 
that Brevik got to the youth camp is really pretty incredible, and I don't want to go ahead and fault anyone because nobody knew what was going on at this point, but he told the guards that he was on the island to carry out a routine check on security after the Oslo attack. He was ferried by boat out to the island where, as we know, he opened fire and simply began shooting haphazardly at yeah. teenagers. He was disguised as a, as a police officer. That's right. And he legally had a Glock pistol, a rifle, and a hunting gun. Apparently, he had a number of other weapons in his car, including machine pistols. Six days prior to the incident, he had posted on his Twitter account his only Twitter message ever, which was a version of a quote by John Stuart Mill. One person with a belief is equal to the force of 100,000 who have only interests. My real concern with this, because the reporting is widely available, is the media situation surrounding it. And everyone's first guess about the perpetrators was it was Islamist radicals. And it was dead wrong. And we see this happen very, very often. Not only that, we see a complete reticence to even admit that anything was a so-called right-wing attack, and Brevik has been known to write posts on a number of these right-wing internet forums in Norway, where he's described himself as a nationalist, he has new, uh, written a bunch of uh, different screeds critical of Muslims, and, you know, the thing is, Fox News doesn't even care that this is not actually Islamist terror. First, they reported a couple of times that this may be connected to that. However, Eventually, they realized that it wasn't, but you know what? They still were talking about, uh, to people as if that's the biggest concern. The biggest concern, Lewis, it doesn't matter that this particular incident wasn't Islamist terror, but let's just keep talking about Islamist terror. And I, this, is, this is not a parody clip. This is not Saturday Night Live. This is real. Take a listen to this. We're not properly prepared for this kind of thing. That's right, Greg. You've heard the term, the exception that proves the rule. Um, you know, this wasn't Islamic terrorism. It was, it's one of the first instances since Oklahoma City when terrorism on this scale was not Islamic. But steps you could take to defend your people and your government and your society against Islamic terrorism would also come in handy <laughs> against lone wolves, as this is turning out to be. It just right. looks like the Norwegians didn't happen to take them, nor did they approach terrorism in what, frankly, was a serious manner, I'd say. Okay, right. As long as you protect yourself against Islamic terrorist threats, you'll be you will be protected against all terrorists. What's incredible is I just played 28 seconds of that clip, Lewis, and in those 28 seconds, do you realize the amount of nonsense that was covered? We included in that clip, even though this wasn't Islamist terror, that's the concern, and that's what we need to be prepared for. We included this was a lo another lone wolf completely disconnected from anything else, and we included in there that um, Norway does not take seriously issues of terror. So we managed to include basically the full suite of conservative talking propaganda points on terror in only 28 seconds. It almost warrants congratulations to Fox News for being able to stuff that all in to 28 seconds, does it not? It, it requires a lot of skill. Even though, unfortunately, unfortunately for the narrative that we here on Fox News like to further, this wasn't Islamic terror. We should still talk about Islamic terror, and we should also mention that violence and terror, uh, in this case, were yet another lone wolf, completely disconnected from the broader context of right-wing violence and terror that we constantly see now, and not representative of any ideology beyond this one crazy individual. 
the two-minute clip, which I would not even dare play for you, because if we did that, we would have to warn you to get the children out of the room. Two-minute clip. They mentioned the term Islamic terror 15 times, roughly, about every 10 seconds. This wasn't Islamic terror. Imagine how often they'd be mentioning it if it was Islamic terror. It would just be, it would be like Rudy Giuliani. Mm -hmm. Noun, verb, Islamic terror. This is Dan from uh, Columbia, South Carolina. Um, I just, uh, I don't know if this will fit into any of your new themes or whatever, but I just saw the most amazing interview on uh, Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley is interviewing Bill Moyers, and uh, he's got a lot to say about, um, you know, just, you know, journalism today and everything and how everything's being twisted around and uh, also, the uh, the importance of uh, public TV and public radio. I'm sure you've probably already seen it, but anyway, uh, have a good one. Uh, thanks a lot. Bye. Hey, Jay, this is Matt in eastern Pennsylvania. I just had a quick comment back for uh, Mara from Pittsburgh, who was on the, the last show. And um, I just wanted to say that, you know, first of all, I think she's 100% right in what she was saying about uh, liberals or liberals, progressives, uh, creating a talking point site, but I'm still back in Jay's plan, uh, Jay's thoughts, uh, about the talking point site for two reasons. Uh, one is that I think uh, liberals need help prioritizing their agenda. Uh, it's that, you know, Republicans and, and conservatives, they only have two issues that they, well, three issues that they really care about. And that allows them to be very succinct and, and precise and, and always on point and on message and to do it in a bullet-pointed sort of fashion. <laughs> we progressives have a lot of things that we care about, and we have trouble sometimes prioritizing and deciding which things are the most important to attack most aggressively. And uh, I think such a site could help us come to an agreement on what things we need to prioritize, like, you know, maybe... Veganism isn't the one thing that we need to attack most often, and maybe attacking religion isn't the one thing that we need to worry about most. Maybe, you know, getting everybody a job is more important than those things right now. And, you know, but we could come together and, and, and focus and figure out, you know, what things are most important. Um, and, and so we could tackle those issues and, and you know, catch the rest as, as we get more more uh, attention and more momentum going. I think the other thing is that the purpose of making talking points for progressives is not the same as for Republicans. They believe the public is stupid. Republicans do. Uh, just as Mara had said, we know, not just think, but we know for a fact that the media gives sound bites more play. And because the Republicans are shouting, as sound bites loud and often, we don't even get to enter the discussion because we want to have a rational conversation and you can't have rational conversation if you can't get in a conversation. And they're too busy shouting their, their bullet points and that doesn't allow us to get in. If we can come up with, with some, some focused points that we can start, you know, interject into discussions, then we can get in there 
and then we can elucidate, uh, you know, put more facts in and, 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 and defend ourselves. But you can't win a debate that you can't get into to, to, to begin with. So anyway, uh, Mara, I think you made some great comments and great thoughts. I just think Jay is also right, and, and uh, I totally support his idea and hope that somebody will find a way to uh, to make it happen. So thanks, Jay, as always. Loving the show. Take it easy, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So uh, a couple of things. I wanted to follow up on what Matt from Pennsylvania was just talking about uh, regarding the talking points idea that I, I talked about on the show a few episodes back. But, but the, the first thing I want to say is uh, I'm going to admit to something that I have never had to admit to before and therefore uh, have never admitted to before, which is that I am at a point right now worse than I have ever been in regarding my ability to respond to emails. I am un, uh, under a pile of emails uh, so large that I, uh, well, I was going to say it keeps me up at night, but it, it, it doesn't. I just, uh, I think, man, I should go, I should really answer some of those emails and, uh, and then I fall asleep. But um, uh, so that is to say that if you, se- if you sent me an email, um, regardless of its level of importance, but, but especially if you felt like, you know, hey, like, I, I had a pretty important question and I, I you know, didn't get a response, or in, more in particular why I'm bringing this up, if, uh, if you were a, a developer who was interested in uh, tackling this um, talking points idea, messaging, messaging idea, and uh, didn't hear back from me, uh, that, uh, you know, I'm sorry, I've been like out of town. I've been, it's, it's nuts. Things are nuts. So, um, I mean, it, I know that, I know that they're there. I know that you guys uh, wrote in and it's just that there are 200 emails on top of yours. And if I didn't respond to it right away, it means I just like can't even find it now. So this is just to say to uh, everyone, if you uh, sent an email, you feel like uh, you want to send it again to, to increase your chances of, of me getting back to you, please feel free to do that, uh, especially those of you interested, you know, developers, as I say. Uh, send me another note. I promise to uh, absolutely prioritize you guys and, and get you in touch with each other to whatever degree you want to be and so forth. Now, to actually follow up on what Matt was saying, I really just wanted to highlight my favorite part of his comment, uh, which was um, which was that progressives need to get themselves into the conversation so that we can then elucidate, <laughs> which made me uh, genuinely laugh because I thought to myself, uh, you know, conservatives, they do a really good job. They, they get their talking points in, you know, they, they bully uh, the media and, and make sure that their message is the one getting out. Now, what is the one thing conservatives do not do in pretty much any circumstance? elucidate. <laughs> I think that pretty much sums up exactly uh, what we would like to do a, a good job of doing that they never do. Now, don't get me wrong. I love, I love that he said it. Uh, it. You know, it's just made me think like, this is, this is why conservatives hate us. You know, I, I love that we get to use words like that and, and I certainly appreciate it. But, uh, but I just thought like, man, what if a conservative was trying to make the argument like, hey, like this is how we need to take the liberal media back. Like, you know, we need to be able to get on there and we need to be able to elucidate our message. It's like, man, 
<clears throat> I can't even imagine a circumstance under which uh, that would happen, unless the conservative is from like a think tank or something. And even then, they wouldn't make that argument because they'd say, we don't need to elucidate. We need to get our talking points out there and trick people into believing us. So that's it for that. Uh, the last thing I want to say today is – you know, you, you guys have been hearing for a few weeks, maybe a couple of months now, about the new program that's been set up to help you do your part to become uh, active, uh, what I've been referring to as a media activist, to allow you to do the same thing that I do with the show. I share uh, clips that I think you should hear, and now you can share the clips that you think other people should hear. You just go to bestoftheleft.com, and there are really easy-to-use links that, uh, that help you do that through Twitter, Facebook, email, uh, Google+, reddit.com, and so on. So uh, now that you've been uh, hearing me say that over and over again in every episode, and hopefully you have taken part or thought about taking part, I'm really interested to hear any uh, stories or feedback, uh, you know, personal feedback, of course, but uh, you know, the, the one thing that I really wish I could do a better job of is tracking clips that go out there that get sent uh, various places by you guys. And, you know, so like Twitter is pretty good. I can track those. I can see when people post, uh, you know, on Twitter. But uh, but like Facebook, there, I, as far as I know, there's no way to track that. So if you post a video to Facebook and then and it starts a big conversation among your friends, there's no way for me to ever know that that happened. So I'm bringing it up now just as a question. I have no idea if that has happened or not. I would love it if it did. And if it has, let me know. Like, So call in 206-202-3410 and tell your story if you have one. And if you don't have one, maybe that means you should go start sharing these, uh, these videos and see what happens. It could be fun. Uh, I can practically guarantee that it would be fun. And hopefully if we get some stories in from some callers, we will all hear – uh, some some uh, first-hand accounts of how fun it is. So that's going to do it for today. I just want to thank uh, all the volunteers who help, help make the show possible and a couple of members who, of course, uh, financially support the show and make it possible in that way. Gail R. signed up for a leftist monthly membership back on January 18th and has stuck with the show since then. And uh, Sydney F. signed up for a socialist yearly membership back on June 30th. So huge thanks to Gail and Sydney and all the members and donors who make the show possible. I simply couldn't do it without you guys. Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. You can donate now both your Twitter and Facebook accounts. Uh, details to that, of course, are on the website. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us directly on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all those are always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out